At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Life's not worth living unless you're living on the edge. And that's uh, and that's the whole reason I go on those sort of trips is you, you want to be on the edge. You, and, uh, everything gets tested. Your body gets tested. Your, your mind gets tested. Your, your boat, your car, your gear, your fishing gear, like every little bit is absolutely tested. I mean, you're on the, on, if you're on the outer reef for three or four days, look, by the end of that, you, every single part of your body is aching, especially if you're throwing top water. Because you're in the elements, you know, you're in the heat, the, the humidity up there is ridiculous. And then you, you, add in, um, you add in a few storms along the way. The first night we had the last trip was just, we had a tropical storm come through and we had 50 knot winds and it was two o'clock in the morning, lightning bolts going, and I hate lightning, I absolutely <laughs> hate lightning. And we're holding down this, um, marquee so a little marquee that we had for shade and we're trying to hold that down for two hours like you know you're on the edge of it. this is the tom roland podcast fascinating stories to amaze encourage and inspire you in fishing fitness and the outdoors and we're brought to you by black rifle coffee i started this podcast as a way to connect with my friends people that i admire and respect and you it has been a learning journey that's made me a better person, a better fisherman, a better father, and a better athlete. I'm so happy that you're on this journey with me, and I'd love to hear from you with show suggestions, guest suggestions, or questions. The best way to get a hold of me is through text. You can text 305-930-7346 for the fastest response, but if you prefer to email, you can send that to podcast at saltwaterexperience.com. That's a dedicated email address just for the show. If you like this show, you can show your support by posting about it on social media and tagging me. Text the link to a couple of friends that may also enjoy it and subscribe and leave a five-star review if you feel like I've earned it. The website is tomrollandpodcast.com and that is where everything lives. All past shows, you can go and listen to any show. You can look up all the different shows that we've done both the how-to Tuesdays, the full links, and the physical Fridays. They all live on TomRolandPodcast.com. And the social media is Tom underscore Roland, R-O-W-L-A-N-D, on Instagram. Or you can go to our big account, Saltwater underscore Experience. I hope to hear from you soon. So now, let's get on to today's show. Hi, I'm Ben Jones, and also known as GT Buster, and this is the Tom Roland Podcast.
All right, we are live with Ben Jones, GT Buster. What time is it over there? Uh, 6.30 a.m., man, nice and early. First coffee for the morning is up and rolling. So. Right on, man. Well, thanks for thanks for doing this. I, uh, I've i been following you uh, on Instagram for a, a, a pretty good pretty good while and then uh, had Mick on the podcast, Mick Guthrie, and uh, he introduced us. So I'm really excited to uh, get to talk to you, man. Yeah, no, I can't wait. I can't wait to dive in. Yeah, so you live in the uh, in the fishing wonderland. Like uh, when I look at what you do, um, it just it's it's truly incredible. I have uh, talked about the trip that I took to Australia on this podcast uh, a few times, but my trip was in a similar area or in the same area that you are on. But basically, it would be like fishing on the Gulf Coast of Florida versus the ocean side of Florida. I was on the, uh, on the, I guess, what would you call that? Gulf side of, of, uh, Carpentaria or, or Cape yeah, York. You're up, you're up in Cape York, I think, but you're on the Western side. Mm-hmm. Um, and we usually venture up, uh, to the Eastern side. So where you guys are at or where you guys went to was probably, um, a little bit more, uh, I suppose it's not so much reef. Yeah. There's no, I don't think, and I haven't been on that side yet. So it's on the bucket list still. So Man. I just get so addicted to that East coast. <laughs> Well, I mean, what you do is is really incredible, and you've got the Great Barrier Reef over there. I was able to go snorkeling on the Great Barrier Reef out of uh, cans and, you know, just took a tourist boat out there. It wasn't like we did any kind of crazy thing. I just had half a day, and I was like, man, I got to yep. get in the water somehow. So I just took the first tourist boat I could find, but um, as soon as I got in the water, I saw one of those giant Napoleon Rass uh, there to, you know, I guess it's like the, the pet that comes to visit the dive boats or whatever, but I got off the, you know, I went down the ladder and I turned around and there's this giant thing right behind me. It scared me to death, but it was also one of the coolest experiences ever. And, uh, the great barrier reef is just, it's, it is one of the wonders of the world. I mean, that place is unbelievable. Yeah, it is. It's it's an unbelievable place. Um, I suppose I've been going up there now for well, since I was probably sixteen or seventeen. So where I live now, I'm in Brisbane. So it's one of it's the capital city of Queensland, which is sort of the east eastern side of Australia. And to get up to the Great Barrier Reef for us, there is some southern reef, but to get up to the real real uh, nice part of the reef, and it comes in a bit close to the coastline. It's probably a, a good day driving and then to go to the really remote areas of Cape York, which is right up the top of Australia on the East Coast. It sort of takes us a good two days of driving and, and depending on what the conditions are like and the, what the roads are like, that can be longer. And, um, yeah, it, it just it really is – you really need to sort of take some time to go and do those things. So, um, yeah, we, we – we sort of take the time of our, out of our out of our schedule to really sort of plug in and and get get on the road, pack a whole heap of stuff. And because you're so remote, you've got to pack so much gear. And yeah, so, that's what yeah, Mick and I were talking about. Is just the challenges to that trip. I mean, in that area, when I flew over that area, I mean, it was getting dark. It was we we flew in in the late afternoon, and it was getting dark, and there wasn't a light bulb anywhere. I mean, it was black yeah. down there. So I can't, I mean, what is, walk us through like what it looks like as you're driving up that area. I mean, what are the roads like? And is it, you know, what are the, what are the challenges? How do you even have enough fuel to drive for two days? Are there places to get 
fuel or what does that look like? I mean, those are, those are serious kind of logistical challenges when you're going into such a remote area. Yeah. Well, we've been doing the, well, the, the main trip that we've been doing up to Cape York, we've been doing since 2004 and a lot's changed in that time too, Tom. So, um, the first trip we ever did, it took us actually, it took us three full days of driving the last, um, the last, uh, probably hundred kilometers or about 60 or 70 miles. Um, that took us a full day because <laughs> we were getting bogged and bogged and bogged and bogged again. So you get, and it's, it's weird. You, you drive the first sort of day, day and a half and you're on, you're on the tar and our highway up the coastline, even our highway up the coastline, it's only one lane this way and the other lane that way. So our main highway compared to you guys where, you know, I've, I've been on the highways over there and let me tell you, that is a death trap. I'm going to drive on the wrong side of the road. Uh, well, our wrong side of the road up on the highways. Uh, you guys drive crazy on those highways, man. Like, well, depending on wild. depending on what city you go to, it's worse. I don't know which one. Which one did you have the pleasure of uh, experiencing? Oh, me and Mick did a trip over there a couple of years ago, and we were driving around Florida and. Um, Oh man, like, and we'd hit a couple of the areas that peak out. And Mick hardly did any driving at all, but I'm a bit of a control freak, so, so I've <laughs> got to be at the wheel. And uh, Mick was asleep most of the time, but it was wild on the highway sometimes. Like, people going from the fifth lane over across to the one lane to get the exit. And, like, I don't know how they got through. Like, man, I, I tell you, well, like, you experienced some of the some of the craziest driving in all of the United States. There's, there's several cities that have really you know, noticeably crazy drivers. Atlanta in Georgia is one that I experienced really crazy drivers and everything's going fine. Everything's fine. And you get just to the outskirts of Atlanta. And as soon as you get like into the Atlanta area, which is a sprawling area, all of a sudden everybody's doing this crazy stuff. All of a sudden the, the, the speed, the average speed picks up. People are shooting in front of you. Miami is a, is another one where the same kind of thing happens. Everything is just fine. Everybody's doing fine. And then you get in Miami and it's, whoa, whoa. I can't imagine what that would be like coming from somewhere else. And you weren't expecting that because, whoa, it's, uh, yeah, on the other side of the road, whenever we go to the Bahamas or, or, you know, I've had to drive on, on the wrong side or the other side of the the road for us too and it, it's a challenge man yeah. you got to constantly you know just about the time you feel like you got it you know you you pull out somewhere and you're going you're going the wrong way <laughs> you know That's, what i mean like yeah, yeah. it's a bad yeah. bad mistake in certain places but uh well yeah. i'm glad you got to experience the uh the best of uh american drivers yeah yeah well it's um it will you're back to back to going to cape, cape york it's um yeah a lot different driving on the roads here the highway like i said before it's only two lanes one one way and one the other way so that 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 in, that in itself can be a bit of a challenge you got to make sure that you you know your wits are about you all the time because there's trucks going past but you sort of get your way out the coastline on the first day and then in the second day you start to come into you sort of head inland to go back to the coastline, so you've got to come up the range and then come back to the coastline, and that's when you start to get into the sort of the more country feel. The the, the land's a lot more vast. You're a lot further between towns, and um, things start to be get a bit drier. So you go up the range, and there's like rainforest. It's beautiful. You can hear bellbirds and beautiful, you know, sounds. 
and then you go out into vast country, dry country land, and then you sort of got to go back to the to the to the coastline. So we usually pull up at our last town, which is called Laura, um, and it's a little uh, indigenous community, uh, mainly indigenous people. You've got only a few sort of white people in the town, and then the small indigenous community around you. And that's the last part of the tar, like to part of the black strip, I suppose, or the sealed road. And then you go on a dirt road. And back in 2004, it was our first trip up there. And we really didn't know what we were in for. And we hit this, uh, it's, it's really famous for red dirt up there. It's like red, it's almost as red as your show. I'm not sure if that's red or not. Yeah, but that's red. yeah it's that's red. red. It's almost as red as the, as the and it gets into every little crevice of your boat and your car. Like, I mean, you could clean your car for four years later and you'll find <laughs> red dirt in your car. It just gets, it's so fine. And then, so you hit this red dirt and I don't know if you guys get it over there, but you get what we call corrugated road where it's, it's like got little ridges. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So we hit this corrugated road and this red dirt gets this corrugated road and it rattles every little bit of your, of your car, of your boat, um, if you if you if you've got sinkers on board, like this is how it is. If you know you got sinkers and you've got the hole through the sinker, yeah. if you've got a bunch of those in a tackle box and you've gone over corrugated road, it closes or because all the sinkers <laughs> rattling against each other, it closes the little hole over. It's crazy. Like, and if you got can, like you have, we have cans of beer. Yeah, you can't have cans of beer because they rub together and they split. Yeah. That's how that's how corrugated the road is. So there's like wow. a fine speed between like 40 mile an hour until about 70 mile an hour. You can't go too quick because you start bouncing across the road. Or if you're going too slow, you, you really just it's oh, it's absolutely crazy the roads. And then wow. you get into so it goes into so you've got that for another you know fifty mile and then all of a sudden you sort of go into really slow, hardcore full driving. It's it's ten mile an hour, five mile an hour, and then and then you'll hit these little sections of um, what we call bulldust or sand. It's it's not sand, but then it's not dust. It's a combination of two, and it's. It's like you, you step out of the car and it's it's like powder. You just step out of the car and your foot just goes, <laughs> and then you get this cloud of dust come up. So we're hitting that and, and you have to hit it in these little narrow tracks. You've got to hit it fast. And you've got the trailer on the back and you're hitting bumps and tree roots and shit's going everywhere. <laughs> it's, it's yeah, it gets crazy. And you get bogged and you'll get bogged and you'll, so you'll go and winch yourself out of the bog and then you're going to start again and you only go another five yards and then you're bogged again. So oh. you winch it out. Oh. So in those bogs, is that is that a wet area? Because you said that you were going through the dry area. So does it are there like mud yeah, holes up no, there? It's, no, it's, it's all mainly dry. We always go up in the dry season. You can't – they basically – they almost shut it all off in the wet season because it, it, it's, um, I suppose it, it's like Florida conditions where you just get these big build-up, hot, humid, ridiculous, and then all of a sudden it's just pouring rain and then you'll get days of rain where and everything just floods. So you can't really get up there in the wet season unless you're going to get on a uh, go-by boat, you know, or if you're um, – 
uh, if you're going in by a helicopter or something like mm-hmm. that. But you can't get up there and wet, so you've got to go in the dry. And um, but even then, if there's been a long wet, you'll still get some mud holes and those sort of things. But most of those uh, boggy boggy sections I was talking about, it's more of this dusty, oh. white, sandy stuff that just you just can't get through. It's just like quicksand. You just oof, if you don't hit it hard enough. You're going down. Oh, wow. Wow. And so, so you yeah. travel through that for a good good ways. Um, yeah. On that first trip, did you did you question whether you were going to make it to the to put the boat in? <laughs> I mean, yeah, it sounds well, like that's a pretty pretty big adventure in its own in its own self, just making yeah, it up well, there. That, it's it's funny to say that because I, I, I really was. We got to the last bit of and we didn't know where we were, so we didn't realize how far we got. Because we, we didn't have GPSs then or anything like that. So, and you got no service. So you're you're eight hours of driving away from any radio coverage. You don't even get radio on your car. You get nothing. No service on your phone. It's the best. Really, <laughs> I, I just love that. Like you're just off the grid, totally off the grid. But we got to the last section when we got bogged and everything was up to the axle, so you sort of couldn't get through and. Uh, I was thinking, this is it. We're we're stuck here. We're we're done. We're we're not going any further. And then uh, we were lucky. We had a friend with us, and he wasn't carrying anything off the back, so he'd winched our. He'd put his. Uh, he'd put the winch onto the front of us and pulled us through the last bit, and that was it. We finally got through. And went, oh, we're here. <laughs> we're, we've done it. We've finally done it. And it was a massive celebration to actually get through and hit the beach, but. We usually stay at a certain location for a two-week period um, and, yeah, we just unload the boat, uh, set up camp under these big trees, uh, the uh, big wongai trees they're called. They're sort of like a, a savannah sort of like tree that has a lot of spread mm-hmm. and you've got a lot of shade to get out of the elements. And then we fish for two weeks, just go crazy wow. for two weeks. And you have enough fuel? Like, how do you how do you manage your fuel consumption? Yeah, well, um, so to go to that location, you don't have to well, you don't have to go too far on the boat. But then you, you'll do some big trips out for a few days of the trip. But um, we take all the fuel in, so uh, it's going to be hard for me to convert it from liters to gallons. Or it's okay. Um, but uh, we, we take in with us um, usually about sort of. 400 litres of fuel mm-hmm. and we're just carrying them all in jerry cans yeah. so they all just sit up in the boat um, and all the camp gears in between the car and the boat and that's half the battle as well you're carrying so much weight between sort of fuel and camping gear and food and you know we, we're taking a generator so we can run our fridges and those sort of things so you and you're going to take your beer, of course, <laughs> over at the end of the day. Um, so you're taking all this weight, and that's where the damage can be done because you're carrying so much weight. Usually, something goes wrong on the trailer, like you'll snap a spring, or you'll yeah bend an axle, or there's all sorts of drama. So, so do you take all that stuff with you now? Yeah, you, we, we always take spares. So a couple of times we've had to we've snapped springs before and not had we've had. Two, like so we take a spare spring but then we've snapped two so basically you pull up on a dirt road in the middle of nowhere someone stays with the boat and car for a day and a half 
and they've got all the fuel, fuel and water and, and beer. <laughs> and uh, you unhitch the trailer, and then you got to go all the way back to town. So you drive another, you know, eight hours back to town, pick up a spring, come back in, oh jack up God. the trailer, take it. Yeah, it's it's a full on trip. So it's it's yeah, it's something. So how yeah. how have things changed as you as you plan for this? You know, and you 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 go up there now, or if you were to plan one now, what would you? change would you have two boats with or two trucks with with boats and then another uh vehicle and extra springs and like what all would you what what lessons have you learned on such a, a remote area that you would um that you would be prepared for uh, now yeah it's 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 just taking extra gear like it, and every year you learn something new and, and we've been going for so long now you sort of there's still lessons to be learned every time. There's something that'll break that you didn't even think of. You look, I didn't even think of bringing a spare one of those. So it's bad luck. You just got to sort of roll with the punches and sort of learn as you go along. So um, the roads have got a lot better since we've been going up. And Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal develop high-quality, technically sound products, and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com it's, it's, a, it's mixed emotions about that because now what's occurred is that you, because they've made the roads a bit easier to get in, um, it's meant that more people will access it. Plus, we've got social media, I suppose, and idiots like myself love posting and entertaining people. <laughs> so a lot of people will follow that. So it does get a lot busier now, Tom, up there, um, which is fine. It's a, Again, it's mixed emotions. You want to be up there by yourself and get away from everyone, but also you want to see other people enjoy it and, and do the stuff that you've done before and got so much love out of it so it, it's made it easier for people to access um and i suppose it, the other side flip side of it is is that that means that you're not going to get that by yourself feeling a lot but that i suppose causes you to then rethink where you go which is which has happened to me over the last probably five years we've sort of stopped going as much to the same location and now I'm sort of venturing to new locations up in Cape York and, you know, doing, even just doing solo adventures myself and, and sort of challenge. I, I just love the challenge, I suppose. Love the challenge, wow, man. Challenge myself. I mean, a solo adventure up there. I mean, what, what happens? I mean, if something goes wrong, you seem like that's, I don't know who would even come to, to help. Is there, and how would you um, even get help? Do you have a satellite phone or? Or what do you do? Yeah, so, well, this year it's the first time we've done it. We, we carried what we call a Zolio. I think Mick might have mentioned it. Yeah. We carried this thing called a Zolio, um, and it 
it connects into your uh, iPhone and it almost turns your iPhone into a satellite phone. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, it's a really handy little little gadget. It doesn't allow you to make calls, but you can make SOS. You can you know, press SOS sure. if you're in danger. Or you can send text messages to people that have the same app. So usually you set up with your family members or friends. Right. And um, you can send sort of text messages and get and weather updates and those sort of things. So that's pretty handy. But, um, yeah, I, did, I, did, I didn't have that device a couple of years ago. And I did take a satellite phone with me and – and did a solo adventure, but did, didn't really didn't need it. I'd got a bit of a weather update, but went out to a little island for a five day adventure up in Cape York and sat on a little island for five days by myself. And yeah, it was um, yeah amazing. That's awesome, man. And so when you go up to uh, to something like that uh, on that on that one that you did by yourself, is that an area that you had been before, or was that is that a new place? Um, it was, but I'd done one trip up there before with a mate, mm-hmm. and so I, I knew sort of I knew what it was all about. But um, yeah, I had, I'd only been there the once, and even just going there again, and then I've been there again. You just seem to learn so much more each time you go. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a um, again, it's it's really off the grid. You've got to. There's some communities around there that you've got to be careful with your vehicle. So. so Firstly, you get to the location where you launch the boat and then you've got to leave your car and trailer somewhere. So there's um, uh, – we get mud crabs over here. I don't know what you guys have over there differently, but in the mangroves area, there's mud crabs. Yeah. And there's a pro, pro crabber, the person who makes a livelihood of catching crabs. Uh-huh. And um, they live in the mangroves, in these little shanties. So you've got to – Bribe him, not bribe him, but take take a, uh, a case of beer and a, a loaf of bread and basically say, hey, look after my car for the next five days and uh, <laughs> I'm going to give you this case of beer. So you leave it with him and then you venture offshore and you're offshore sort of 40 or 50 miles offshore out to a little island and you're going to take everything with you in the boat for those five days. And you're just hoping and nobody – no. Away from everyone. You know what I mean? You, you – 12 hours away from anyone and it's just – and you're on the Great Barrier Reef. Wow. One of the best places. I think probably the best place in the world to fish. That's unbelievable. And so uh, is a loaf of bread and a case of beer enough? Yeah, because <laughs> I don't see that very often. I bet not. I, I can't explain to you how you, – you think of like a little African village where you've got these little shanties and you place that in the middle of the mangroves with sand flies and midges and – crocodiles it's all open he just sits there spraying himself with i don't know agent orange basically just <laughs> spraying himself all day it's it is the roughest thing you could ever imagine that Ooh, into. yeah dang. so they don't see many they don't see many delights and they see a case of beer it's like oh, but they'd God. like to sit inside that car and get away from the flies uh or whatever's yeah. biting them you know like that would yeah. that would be the the thing that uh Man, that just sounds like the most awesome adventure. And then when you get out there, I mean, the Great Barrier Reef, the water is crystal clear. And how many species of fish um, do you, on a trip like you're you're describing there, well, how many species of fish do you think would be available to you? Well, I, I think, well, one of those trips we were up there for two weeks. One of the first trips we did, I think we counted up to sort of 90 different species of fish we over the two weeks. 
90. So it just, not, yeah, something like that. It was like 80 or 90 different species of fish. And wow. Little ones, we were, we were yeah. counting everything. But I mean, just like absolutely different species of fish. It's uh-huh. just, so you can go from um, reef fishing the bottom and, and catching, um, you know, your snappers or, or, or we call them Nanagai here. Um, and then you can go and just throw, uh, I just love the top water stuff. It's top water to me. Like I, when I get, I get in like a tunnel vision where it's, I, I just can't get away from it, especially the reef flat stuff where it's only sort of a lot, you know, it's a, it's a lot shallower. So you sort of look at 10 foot deep and, and you see all the bombies, you're side casting a fish and you're seeing your, you know, your Napoleon wrasse and, uh, all your different sweet lips and coral trout. Now that coral trout looks like our one of our. It, it kind of resembles right. one of our grouper, right? And they're yes. super aggressive, and they crash stuff on the surface. I was looking through your Instagram. It looked like you had a. It, that was one that you particularly liked. Uh, and man, just incredibly beautiful fish, and I guess super aggressive. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a bit of a prize fish over A lot of the, the bottom fish hoes or even, even the topwater fish hoes love catching them because they're great to eat. I'm sure it's the same with the grouper yeah. over there. But um, it, the one thing about them is they'll, they'll crush topwater. They'll absolutely huh. crush topwater. And how and, deep are they coming out of? Like when you're finding a good spot for those, is it 10 feet, 20 feet? What What do you think? It- yeah, well, um, you can get them from anything from in six, foot, six foot of water or even you know, three foot of water with bombies different and they're very hard to, in that sort of water, especially if you get a good one, you basically hand on the spool, lean them back and, you, you know, you're P6 and, you know, 150 pound leader and you are not giving them an ounce, not an ounce. You are trying to put the brakes on because the second you give them a little bit, they're straight under the coral and, and it's not just under the coral, they seem to find, it's like they've got their own little caves. They'll just keep going. If you give them any line, they'll just keep going and going and going, and then it's all over. So it's anything from sort of, you know, three foot of water right through to um, what would convert, that convert to. So I've got my first two really big coral trout, which I call dino trout. These are just dinosaurs of the ocean. They come out of 180 feet to hit top water. What? Here we go. What? These, <laughs> these are bottom-dwelling fish. You know, look, they're like your grover. They'll be sitting on the bottom. They're coming out of 180 feet. I was casting. So we we come up to school at Yellowfin, and I had top water on, casted these Yellowfin, and I'm sort of going pop, pop, and then boom, got crunched. And I went, oh, yeah, good one. And then it wasn't fight. You know, Yellowfin go crazy. The speed's crazy. Whereas the coral trout will be, it'll just be more down, hard, yeah, yeah. grunt. This thing was fighting weird. I was thinking, I must have it hooked sideways. And then I was like, this is not a yellowfin. And then all of a sudden, this big dino trout comes up. I'm like, boys, boys, what do I do? Help, help. Give me something. Help. <laughs> that seems like that would be an advantage, though. Like if you could find them to where they would where they would respond to the lure in, in deeper water, you would have a, you know, as opposed to three feet of water. That sounds like an almost yeah. impossibility to get yeah. one to, you know, but but if you give if they give you a little bit of leeway with you know maybe 50, 80, 100 feet of water is going to yeah. make it a lot more possible to land them. I would think. Yeah, hundred percent right. So yeah, you get them out of that water. It's it's a lot easier to 
a lot easier to land. Um, and they are just like that that direct, I suppose, that first up hookup, that's when the most power from those fish come. So once you're sort of bringing them back, it's, it's yeah, it's not, not as, you know, as, as, as crazy as getting them out of sort of three foot of water or six feet or ten feet of water. So it's, yeah, it's a different vibe, but it's still crazy to see. You're sort of looking down expecting a, a yellowfin and you see this thing come up and this big sort of ready brownie log come up. You're like, what the hell have I hooked out of, you know, 180 feet of water? It's just crazy that they'll be looking up or whether they're already up there with the school of yellowfin or whether they're looking up and just going, oh, there's there's a there's a, a wounded bait fish and right. come up and crunch a little from there. So. Well, yeah, one of the um, techniques that, that we use all over Florida is, you know, we'll, we'll cast net the pilchards and we'll take them out into deep water. You may have tuna schools or amberjack schools or all different kinds of schools of fish that are deep, maybe 200 feet deep. You start throwing the pilchards out there and you're live chumming and they come up and they start busting on the surface. Then you can throw lures or flies or, or, or you know, live baits on and you catch them right on the surface like that. But But it takes, you know quite a few pilchards to really get their attention and pull them up. But it is, I've always been uh, amazed at how far away those fish can see just, you know, five or 10 or 20 or 30 pilchards and they'll, they'll come all the way up for those. If, if the, if those dino trout um, are seeing your lure, it also speaks to the clarity of the water. I would think that they could, they could see it from a hundred feet away that you would have that kind of visibility there or even more. What do you think the visibility yeah. on the Great Barrier Reef under good conditions? Um, what do you think that that might might be? Oh, it's, it's, sometimes it's forever. Like I, I don't know what the visit is. Like it would be two hundred feet, three hundred wow. feet. Like it, it, you just see some days out there the water when you look at it, especially on the outer reef. Like the outer reef is you got your inner reef and and those sort of areas, and that gets nice and clear. And you might get sort of ninety feet on a good day, but you go step out over the outer reef. And that's a different story. It's sort of it's a the inner reef. You can go from being in thirty feet to ninety feet to one hundred and twenty feet, sort of thing. But then you go to the outer reef, and it goes from you know three feet of water down into all of a sudden it's a straight drop down into thirty feet of water, which is isn't deep. But then all of a sudden, within half a mile, you're all of a, all of a sudden in three thousand feet of water. Wow! And the water is like it's not blue anymore. It's like a purple yeah. color. It's just crazy water. Like it's, and then you got dog tooth tuna, massive black marlin, yellowfin tuna, big eye tuna, dolphin fish, wahoo, and then you can be casting the flats all of a sudden within half a mile for coral trout, Napoleon wrasse. Um, yeah, it's it's just. The place is insane, and you just you haven't got a lifetime to fish it because it's it, it's just not enough time in your life. Man, that sounds like a, a fisherman's dream. I mean, that just sounds like like the the greatest place you could ever go. I think it probably is. Um, do you ever get out there and like Mick was explaining the boats that you guys fish? You're fishing basically, you know, seventeen foot boats. Is that is that right? I see. I think I see one. You know, out your window there with a the trolling motor, and and uh, is that your yeah. boat right there? Yeah, that's some rig outside. Yeah, there. I so, mean, yeah, it basically so, looks like something between a bay boat and a skiff. Um, yeah, not not a high sided boat. And so, when you get out there and you're going to that outer reef, you ever hook something that you think, man, I think I am 
might, might not have should I uh, shouldn't have done this. <laughs> like you catch a massive black marlin out there, and you're I mean that's like old man in the sea. Like like that's just that's just awesome. And and to combine that, you're just out in on the edge of the earth. If anything goes wrong, I don't know who's gonna go help you. And now you hook on to some kind of fish that is like probably bigger than your boat. I mean, that could happen, right? Like that's, that's, that's life, real life that, that, that you're, that's like on the edge, that's extreme fishing. <laughs> that is, yeah. is so cool. Like, but even when you're explaining it, I'm like, damn, man, like I have felt that before where you hook something and you're like, I don't know if I should have done this. You're by yourself, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've hooked something and you're like, man, some things could go wrong here. And I don't, I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I made a mistake by hooking this big shark or, you yeah. know, like something huge. I mean, there's, 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 um, we haven't had it happen yet. We've had, um, big black marlin come up yet, but it's only a matter of time. And that's always in the back of my mind. I think we hook a massive black marlin on top of the water where we're throwing for dog to tuna or whatever. What's, what's going to happen? How, how are we going to, how are we going to land this? By God, we're not cutting this thing off. <laughs> like, that, like you look at that black marlin, a big one, like a you know a five hundred pounder or something like that, and you're in a seventeen footer. There's no way known you should be landing that fish, but there's no way known you're cutting that fish off. You're going to do everything to get the side of the boat. So we, we're just going to have to make do with what we have have at the time. But we, and we get a lot of sharks. You get a lot of big tiger sharks come up side of the boat. We've had um, we've had it before where these sharks. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Decova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. And I, Tom, I can't explain to you, and I know there'd probably be a problem off the, uh, off the Florida coast as well, but the amount of sharks now these days, it's just phenomenal. They, they are getting what I would call worse, you know, it, you can hardly land a fish, especially on that outer reef. Mm. We get them in, they get in a feeding frenzy where they're eating, you know, the fish you're catching, and then all of a sudden they've got nothing more to eat, so they start hitting the prop. If you've got a stainless steel prop or, you know, you, it's just slowly turning in the water and getting the flash off the sun, 
they'll come in and nail the prop. They'll just go mad. Like they're just in a sensory where they just won't stop. So you're in a small boat and you've got that sort of stuff happening, but you, you really do know you're alive. But that's, I suppose, that's that's what I go there for. Yeah. You know, even when you get bad storms, you get a bad tropical storm coming, or you end up in a you know in a spot where I think Mick told the story where we were stuck on a beacon for a good five or six hours in the middle of nowhere, and, and the boys were looking at me as if to say, "Turn the turn the EPIRB on, which is the you know the mm-hmm. signalling device to save us." And it wasn't until they looked at me with deathly eyes like I thought they were going to kill us or they, I thought they were going to kill me. I thought the boys were going to kill me and they actually just sort of looked at me and go, set the effing EPIRB off now. And I, it took me to that last minute to sort of go, right, oh, we're going to set it off now. But I, I, that's what I go there for. Even though in the time you're sort of thinking about it, you're in a life or death situation sometimes, you're thinking, this is what I'm here for. Yeah. This, this is actually what I come here for, to get the, that actual thrill that, I don't know, you're on the edge. Like I said, you're on the edge of the earth. You're on the edge, man. And and it you were on the edge when you put the boat in the water. Like, the, <laughs> <laughs> and now you're now you're out so far away and and then you're dealing with, you know, the, the wildlife too, like the, the sharks. So is it mostly tiger sharks or do you have a lot of other sharks? That you're that oh, when there are problem there's, sharks. There's every single shark. Probably the only the only shark you, you won't get there is the great white up that far north. Mm-hmm. The water's too warm for the great white. Where, where we are up the coastline here in Brisbane, there's definitely great whites. Um, but up there is every other shark. So you've got your um, tiger sharks, big hammerhead, massive tiger sharks, massive hammerheads. Um, the one that's probably the most dangerous is the oceanic white tip, mm-hmm. I think, from what I hear from the divers. Like they're like really aggressive and they get a bit larger. You, your small black tip reef sharks, they're all in the mingle, you know, but mostly mostly your, you know, your, your bull sharks as well on the inner reefs. You get a lot of big bull sharks and mm. they're super aggressive. They'll hit your boat. They'll nail anything in the water. Wow. That is, that's awesome. So crocodiles. Yeah. That's a different story. Right. There are so many things in Australia that can, can hurt you. I mean, even coming from, from Florida where, you know, I mean, we got all those same kind of sharks and they can be very aggressive and stuff like that, but you know, you still wade and stuff like that. But when, when I went to Australia, I mean, I said, do you, you know, do we wade? And they, and the, the dude that booked the trip for me, he was like, you don't go very far from the boat. Like there's too many things in the water that will (laughs) Too many bitey things in the water is what he told me. And I was like, understood, copy. Okay, I won't go very far away. You don't need to tell me twice. But uh, the crocodiles, I mean, you know, all of us watch Steve Irwin, uh, you know, handle the the crocodiles down there. And they are the biggest things I've ever seen in my life. Um, I'm interested in the... And you'll see this pig right, like a wild pig right next to you. Because that's how they, they, they don't have any interaction with humans. And then all of a sudden, you sort of wake up and you sort of get a jolt and they, they get scared because they see it and then off they run. You get dingoes coming in your camp looking for scraps and you sort of just got to shoo them off. But the first year we were up there, there was our camp and then about two miles down the beach was the other camp. And that is it within. 30 miles of beach in the middle of nowhere in Cape York, no one else. Our camp, their camp. And um, 
on the last day that we were there, we woke up at four o'clock in the morning. We were packing up, getting ready to go in the dark. And we had this spotlight from right down the beach from their camp shining at us and it kept flashing. And it was, and they were, hunt, they were doing a lot of hunting, like pig hunting. Mm-hmm. So we thought, oh, geez, they're up. That's a bit weird. They're up early. It must be pig hunting or something. We thought it was just the light flashing on us all the time. We didn't think much of it. Little do we know, a crocodile had come up the beach had come to the front of their tent and gone in, grabbed a bloke out of the tent, pulled him out of the tent, started dragging him down the beach while he's trying to beat it off. The rest of the family run out. And uh, while he's trying to beat this croc off, getting attacked by a croc, one of the guys luckily had a um, 9mm semi-automatic handgun, highly illegal over there. I don't think it would be illegal. No. Um, in Australia, it's highly legal to carry that that sort of weapon, and it was um, I don't know whether it was collector's item or what he had it, but it was lucky he had it. He put he put his knee over its head and put four shots into it and uh, killed it on the spot. So when we left, we went stopped in to say goodbye, and here's this bloke being attacked by a crocodile laying on the ground, uh, four point two meter or what's that like a twenty foot crocodile sitting right in front of him, dead as a doornail. And um, what had happened is also when he was getting dragged out of the tent, a grandmother of the family that was there, she jumped out. She was the first one to see the crocodile attack happening and she jumped on his head. As she jumped on his head, it's flung around, hit her arm, nearly cut her arm off, which was dangling by a bit of skin. Hit a nose, broke a nose, and I mean, it was dangling by the skin. So they've had to rush her out. And while they're rushing her out, old mate was just laying there. He was still conscious. Everything was fine. He had a broken leg, broken arm. Had to leave him, rush her out because she was bleeding profusely from her arm. And she didn't rush out. And 12 hours worth of driving, and she had to get to the hospital and save her arm. And, and they couldn't take him you know, too? Sorry, they couldn't take him too. Like, no, no, because it was a, it, she was bleeding to death. Yeah, basically, they I had a, a tourniquet on her arm, and they had to get her out. He was, he was basically had puncture wounds on him, but he was he was bleeding, but wasn't bleeding profusely, and it was enough for him to to stay where he was with some of the rest of camp. And so we set off an EPIRB when we got down there in the morning. We set off an EPIRB, and they had a um chopper a chopper ride come in and uh they had a first aid guy with them the first aid guy give him some first aid we had we had a first aid kit which helped and um yeah put his leg into a sling oh i'm sorry a leg into a splint um and his arm into a sling and, and patched him up as best as possible we lifted him up put him in the in the chopper and then took him away but i've got i've got the full story on my youtube channel but it's it's a yeah, it's a crazy thing that this crocodile actually come up the beach, come to the front of the tent, and um, it was like it was pitch black dark. They had the tent, they had the tent, and then they had like the the fly awning, mm-hmm. you know, still open. Yeah, oh, sorry, still closed. So it was the, the flaps were open, so you could see outside, and there was a moon that that morning, and. His wife said she heard a rustle at the front of the tent, thought it was a dingo or a pig or, you know, something that they've had all week. And then she sort of woke up and looked sort of 
could see this silhouette of the crocodile at the front of the tent. She said, Jason, Jason, there's a croc, there's a croc. He sort of, he reckons he woke up, he just woke up. As soon as he sat like that, so I sat up, the croc's just gone oh. straight through the tent, grabbed him. Oh, my gosh. Crazy, crazy thing. That was our first year of going wow. up Wow. That's the craziest oh. story I've ever heard. That, oh, oh my God. Was. I mean. So if, if any listeners are, are wanting to search it, if they, they don't believe the story, is it? I mean, it, it is hard to believe, but look up um, Alicia Sorahand, Crocodile Hate York, or something like that. Just keep it type in Alicia Sorahand, and I've got the um, – I've got the story of it in my YouTube, which shows the actual dead crocodile. It shows the bloke that's wounded and all the first aid we were giving him. And I tell the story, you know, in, in a more of an elaborate. But it's it's something that you could. It was. It's your worst nightmare. Your that worst is, nightmare. That is a crocodile. I mean, in the United States, I guess the closest thing that we would have would be a grizzly bear. Or maybe a mountain lion could take somebody. You, we do have crocodiles, but they're they're much smaller than than yours, and apparently not as. I don't know. I mean, I guess that people camp in the Everglades, and they probably they probably encounter crocodiles. You don't hear about them like you hear about the Australian crocodiles. Um, so maybe they're not as aggressive. I don't. I don't know. Maybe I'm. I don't have any. I don't have any negative altercations with crocodiles we see them they're like sunning on the on on like a little little you know beach area as we're riding by that's it and you know i've paddleboarded yeah. in in areas where they are and didn't really even feel you know really all i mean it was unnerving for sure yeah. but apparently like if you did that same thing in australia that would be absolute insanity to do that so um uh, I don't. I don't think that ours are, and I could be way wrong. We'll have fifty emails telling me stories about uh, American crocodiles that that have gone after people, but um, I don't. I don't think ours are as 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 aggressive as as yours. Uh, but that is that is the worst nightmare ever. Um, a crocodile taking whew, right at night too. That's crazy. <laughs> you know, one of the other things that you were talking about um, on your. Uh, well, just just before I get to that, but you were talking about how that you you've seen an increase in the sharks since you have uh, have have been going up to that area. Do you see it? Is that consistent with other places you fish closer to home, or or do you see the the yeah. increase? And do you hear about the increase of sharks all over Australia, or or what's your opinion on uh, that? I, I definitely think so, mate. I think it's um, it definitely here at home, here even in Brisbane, where you know once upon a time you'd barely you'd barely see a shark, you know, you'd barely see a shark. Now when I go out there, I suppose it's been probably for the last ten years I've really noticed an increase where just there won't be a time I go out offshore here and not see a shark, and so much so now is that um, I think the increase has just exploded where. Um, I just sent a post of a, of a, of a guy that um, makes soft plastics over here and he's quite successful with soft plastics. But he's now in the river system and having a problem not only with losing fish to sharks in the river systems or in the mangrove systems, but he's also now hooking a lot of sharks on his soft plastics. Mm. So they're even hitting like your soft plastic lures in right. the inshore areas, which 
offshore, we lose a lot of lot of our lures to sharks, a lot of our top water lures and those sort of things. Now to sharks and and they are just it is pretty much there's not too many times offshore now. There's like every second fish is getting chased by a shark. If you're wow. trying to catch mackerel or GTs or any of your top water species, the sharks are onto it. Now, did anything change with the commercial fishing regulations on sharks, or did they become protected in certain areas, uh, or do you I, notice? I, know, I, think it's, I think it's frowned upon now. I think, um, I think uh, you know, even just with, uh, I don't know whether um, commercial things have changed for, for shark fishing, but I, basically there's no shark fishing allowed as far as I know. I could be wrong, but it's just... But there's and and the, uh, I mean it's it's just frowned upon to to take a shark right. or to to you know to kill a shark. Or yeah, like I mean it, it became that way here too, and and um you know even in the uh, in the United States, uh, people. Let's just say that the international waters are not very far off, and uh, apparently there used to be more shark fishing than is happening now. So they've become somewhat protected and our shark population has completely exploded. And I don't know that it's, it's because of the convert commercial fishing regulations or not, or for whatever reason, we have more sharks in the state of Florida, the Florida keys up both coasts. I mean, it is crazy going over to the Bahamas. You'll be catching yellowfin tuna and you get one, you might get one. And then you got to move. Might, yeah, might. You, you might get one, yeah. and it, and that is somebody that is like yourself, or 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 me, or somebody that has been there. They know, like this is going to be an athletic event. You're going to hook a fish, and you better be on that fish, no messing around. <laughs> you give it everything you've got. You fish the heaviest tackle no you can possibly no do try. it, and you get that thing in like it's like your life depends on it. And you might get one, maybe. Maybe you get two, but once one gets attacked, it's over. You're not catching another one. Yeah, so you got to move. Yeah, and even when you move, they seem to move with you. And maybe you yeah, can hook a fish right. and, and, and they're going, you know, maybe you can get one. But you hear so much about, you know, the sharks are, are endangered and they are, no, um, I, I mean, I, I, I do believe that no, it, it could possible, it could be possible that in certain parts of, of the world, uh, they're, they're fishing for sharks so much that the worldwide population of sharks maybe could be going down, but in certain areas like your area, my area, the population is, is more than I've ever seen before. And I think most of the, the guides that come on here and talk, uh, it, they have the same experience. I don't see, I don't, I don't talk to anyone who is like, man, I haven't seen a shark in months. It's not like that. It is, it is the other way. And it's every species, man, just tons of sharks. And I don't have anything against sharks. I like looking at sharks. I like, I like them being around, but I, I don't, they make it really, really hard to, uh, yeah. to catch a fish. And, and it's interesting to hear, you know, the, the Americans will, will be interested to hear that, that that's your experience in Australia. Cause we don't, we don't have our finger on the pulse on, on, you know, that, that you would have a lot of sharks there. I would imagine you would have a lot of sharks here talking about the great barrier reef. It's probably one of the greatest fishing, um, or, or fish ecosystems in uh, uh, probably the best. I think you could say that like, so of course there's going to be great um, amounts of sharks there, but to to hear you say that you've seen the it, on the increase is very interesting to me. Hundred hundred percent on the increase, and so much so. Like again, I keep referring back to Cape York and, and the sort of spot I would really, like back in two thousand and four. 
especially on the inshore reefs, we hardly lost a fish to a shark on, on the inshore reefs. Now you go and fish those same reefs and you can barely catch a fish. Like you were saying, you, you can barely catch a fish. It is, and I mean catch a fish. You might land the first one, like we said, and then all of a sudden it's just every one of them get cleaned up by a shark. And it's, it's so much so that you, you get sick of it. You just, no, we can't keep doing damage to the actual fish right. population. You got to move. The sharks. You got to move. You got. You got to move. And like you said as well, is that you go and move, but you might move a mile or two miles, which you think's plenty, but it only gives you breathing room for like a couple of minutes. Yeah. And then it's, yeah shark, shark, shark. I shark, know, and shark. you would think it's that, um, you know, like uh, you know, we think. Well, because of all the pressure that we have in in Florida and going over to the Bahamas and fishing these areas where a lot of people fish there, that the sharks become conditioned to the boat. They they hear these boats, they hear the outboards, they they're they're like, okay, well, I got a meal there last time, so I hear those outboards. I'm going to that that sound, and that sound moves over there. I'm going. I'm going to follow that sound. Um, but but what's different is that in the areas that you're talking about fishing. Virtually no one goes there. I mean, by by our standards, no one's there. You're saying yep. that you you know it's hard to get yep. that 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 completely alone feeling. Maybe you see a boat in in two days. I don't know, ten boats. How, what would it be? What would it look like if you thought it was super crowded where we're talking about going? Yeah, you, you probably see a, a two boats in a day or something see, like that. I mean, that's you know that's like, I mean, that is I'm, way yeah, out there. You I'm know, interesting theory on that. I think I think the. And, and we talk about the evolution of different species, and I think um, now the evolution of the shark is, and I don't know whether it passes through the DNA, it could be, a, and I'm no scientist, I'm far from a scientist, but I'm not sure if it's possible for that, um, for sharks to know that a boat or the sound of a boat, or the motor, for that to actually pass down through their DNA so it just becomes part of their DNA where they know that this could be a, a, a weird theory, but I, I think that, that that's what's happening now is that the sharks are actually, it's passing through their DNA to know that boats are a source of food. That's just part of their makeup whether from when they're, they're born from the get-go. Mm. So, you know, you get, like you said, you go, we go into these places like remote places where you barely see a boat. I can barely see a boat, but these sharks are like, you turn up to the outer reef and you, as soon as you step out over that ledge and it starts to drop away a bit, you look under the boat. It's not even, oh, pull the fish in, okay, the sharks are ready. You turn up, you look under the boat and you got two sharks circling you straight away. I mean, like, immediately, as soon as you pull up. So, so to me, that's saying to me, the sharks know that the boat is a source of food and they even know that from not even being around boats. It's it's something that's actually in their system now that's actually they know that a boat is a source of food. Well, I've heard crazier theories, um, and uh, I'm no scientist either, but I have uh, listened to some other podcasts and some other theories about that happening with other animals. Um, and I think it was yep. – I think I, I heard it um, – there was this really super fascinating podcast. It was one of Joe Rogan's early ones. And he had this guy on there, and he was talking about morphic dissonance, I think is what, what he called it. And he was talking about these these crows or these blackbirds of some sort, and they learned how to um, – they would deliver the milk 
And there was a story about the, the milkman used to put the milk on the, the doorstep. They'd bring your milk to you. And there was like a, a, a thin layer of whatever, not like a metal cap or whatever, but just a thin layer of, of something would cover the milk. And these birds could go over and they could get in there and they would suck out the cream off the top. And they would oh, just get the cream it. and they would go around. But then they found out that birds in other areas away from this started doing the same thing. Yep. So kind of what you're talking about with the sharks, but it there, there's documented things of, of this happening. So it was too far for these birds. They weren't like migratory birds and they weren't like learning this behavior here and going over there. But somehow or another, it just happened. And I think, you know, you know, we haven't even talked about cast, but but you can see things like this happen with with certainly with with bass fishing of a lure will say it's a chatterbait or or something that has one of your lures right and the first time you throw it in it's just they can't stay away from it they love that lure you're catching bigger more bass and 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 let's just say you fish it in this one body of water and then it stops working in that body of water but it takes a long time i i don't know it just stops working everywhere right like the bo yeah. bodies of water don't have to be connected and it's like I don't know. It could be that anglers have less confidence in it because we used to fish this lure and it worked really well. And then it stopped working. And, but now it seems to have stopped working over here in this other unassociated lake that should have nothing to do with pressure or anything else. And you can see how this, the, these lures, they get really popular and then they fall off, but they fall off everywhere. And it's like, yeah. is there, I don't know. Like, is there some sort of weird communication I'm that, sorry, that I don't know. I, and, and, and the yeah. DNA is like, not even like what you're talking about. These sharks, like there's a possibility that they could move into these different areas and they could have had this experience or they could have had offspring that go to these different areas. But like what, what you're talking about in these impoundments and these lakes, they're completely separate. They're like different yeah. universes living you know, in space and there's no travel back and forth between the two, but somehow the experience is similar that this lure just all of a sudden stopped working in both places. I don't know. Yeah, what yeah. is that? Yeah. <laughs> it's great for lure manufacturers because you just make new lures, yeah, yeah. but <laughs> you know, I don't know. It's, it's a strange thing, but I, I, I maybe we'll put that. We'll find that, um, We'll find that Joe Rogan podcast and people can listen to it if they want. It was one of the really early ones. And I think this guy's name was, um, oh, I'll think of it. I'll think of it. But it, I mean, I'm talking like he's put out thousands of podcasts now. And I bet this was like one of the first 500 podcasts that he did. And, and it was Rupert. Oh, gosh, I, I'll think of it because it was really one of the best ones I ever listened to. And I just he talked about dogs and how dogs can like as you're coming home and your dog gets up and stands by the door way earlier than he could have heard your car or anything like that. And they had some sort of, some sort of dang, some sort of a, a, an extra sense that we don't understand. Can't understand. We don't, we don't know what it is, but I've seen not. that. I've seen that happen where the dog gets up and starts looking out the window three or four or five minutes before a car comes into the driveway. And it does it every single yeah. time. My dog used to do this. But this person, he had this uh, 
Rupert Sheldrake. That's the that's the episode uh, of Joe Rogan, and he called this what we're talking about morphic dissonance. And uh, I, I believe that's what it's. I, it's been a long time since I listened to that episode, but uh, morphic resonance, resonance. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The theory of morphic resonance. Okay, so now you know what you're going to do for the rest of the day, right? <laughs> you can listen to a three-hour Joe Rogan podcast and and uh, and tell me if I'm if I if I'm onto something here. But um, I don't know. It sounds very familiar. I've I've heard crazier theories than what you're talking about. But all I know is what you know is that when you get to these certain areas, the sharks are there, and they seem to yep. be following the boat. How do they know how to do that? Yep. I don't know. They definitely do yeah. Well, listen, man, you, uh, you are living an awesome life down there and, uh, I gotta get down there and fish with you and, and Mick, that would be, um, just a dream come true. That would be amazing. Uh, you guys get after it. I can see on your, uh, on your Instagram, you guys are a bunch of animals down there, man. That's the kind of people I want to fish with. <laughs> you go yeah. after it. And this, this adventure, this whole adventure going up there, it sounds, um, I don't know. I'll, I'll just stay in the car because I don't know much about uh, crocodiles and what to avoid and, and all the other snakes and spiders and other things that you have down there. I'm afraid I'll take a wrong step, but I'll, uh, I, I would love to do that. That just sounds like the greatest trip ever. Yeah, but you, you do have to do it. Whenever I go on those trips, I always think in the back of my mind, I always think life's not worth living unless you're living on the edge. And that's uh, and that's the whole reason I go on those sort of trips is you, you want to be on the edge. You, and, and everything gets tested. Your body gets tested. Your your mind gets tested. Your your boat, your car, your gear, your fishing gear. Like every little bit gets absolutely tested. I mean, if you're on the on, if you're on the outer reef for three or four days, like by the end of that, you every single part of your body is aching, especially if you're throwing top water, because you're in the elements. You know, you're in the heat. The, the humidity up there is ridiculous, and then you you add in um, you add in a few storms along the way. The first night we had the last trip was just we had a tropical storm come through, and we had fifty knot winds, and it was two o'clock in the morning, lightning bolts going, and I hate lightning, I absolutely hate lightning. And we're holding down this uh, marquee, so a little marquee that we had for shade, and we're trying to hold that down for two hours, like. You know you're on the edge. There. You know you're on the like, edge. What would happen if that that would be the worst time for a crocodile to come visit you uh, during <laughs> during <laughs> during that? <laughs> like you think, oh, I can't get any worse than this, and now now there's a croc a twenty foot crocodile there to come to visit. <laughs> that's that's incredible. That's what, that's what it felt like at 2 o'clock in the morning. We were thinking that like, it can't get any worse to a trip to start start the morning off with a, with a tropical storm in the dark, holding down tents. and yeah, It's just um, – but, yeah, you wake up in the morning, you dust yourself off, you're like a crumb sausage, you've got sand from head to toe, and you just think to yourself, what the – what just what just happened? And then you think, 
well, this is what I come here for. This is this is what I actually come here for. This experience, you know, to actually push yourself to the limit. Man, I tell you what, you would have to um, be extra super careful of uh, of losing your boat. You know, like if fifty knot winds. I mean, <laughs> extra anchors, extra lines, extra everything every night. Because after having that experience one time, if you had lost your boat, yeah. if a boat had gone oh. away, I mean, that's that could be it, right? Like, what you're yeah. just gonna live out there on that little sand island for not very long? That's what man told me. To live on the edge, Mark. That's uh, <laughs> life's not worth living unless you live on the edge. Uh, it's, uh, yeah. And that, 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 all that sort of stuff is possible. You could get attacked by a crocodile. You could get attacked by a shark. You could get stung by a box jellyfish. But hey, you're not going to get that if you're going to sit on the lounge at home watching it on TV. So you might as well get out there and do it. And I love it, man. I love it. That's a great way to that's a great way to end this one. And uh it won't be the last one. I really enjoyed talking to you and uh I'd love to have you on again. Um and so tell us about how people can follow you and and we didn't even really talk about cast, but uh you're a you're a co owner in cast and, and we did talk about it pretty pretty extensively with Mick. So uh tell people how they could follow you and how they can uh learn more about what you do at Cast and and uh, you know, where where can we find you? Um, so if you're on Instagram, if you just search GT Buster on Instagram, you'll find me on there. So just GT is in Giant Valley Buster. Um, you can find me there or um, castmag.co, which is our Australian handle, or castfishing.co, which is our American handle. We have got our business over there, which is a small startup, which we're, we're sort of kicking a few goals, but, yeah, we're, we're just working hard in the background there. Um, if you want to go and have a look at any of my videos, I've put a lot of videos. I think I've got a hundred plus videos on YouTube. That's been a bit of a slow slog, but I love doing it. I love putting all my trips up there. So if you want to see one of those trips in its full, um, you can see that on my YouTube channel. Just search GT Buster on there. Um, there is the crocodile uh, attack uh, story on there. So you don't actually see the attack on that YouTube video, but you do get the full um Full kit and caboodle. It is a half an hour video explaining exactly what happened and how it happened. So, and you do get to see the dead crocodile, and you do get to see the bloke that got attacked. It's um, crazy footage. So, well, we'll we'll put that in the yeah, we'll put that in the notes, and uh, people can people can click that link and go go watch that. Um, but anyway, awesome talking with you, man. Awesome talking with you. Um, Thanks for doing it, and uh, definitely go follow Ben uh, for for some really good content. His GT Buster is is one of my favorite Instagrams, and uh, it will be one of your favorites too. You catch us some crazy stuff, man. <laughs> crazy stuff in Australia. Um, but anyway, thanks so much, Ben. Nice to talk with you, and uh, we'll have you on again. Thanks very much, Tom. Really appreciate it, Mark. It's awesome. Yeah, thanks. Through the Blackwater bayous and in the dark Louisiana night floats a duck camp, alive with the sounds of swamp pop and the smells of Cajun cooking. From the Mississippi Delta in Venice to the Cajun prairies of the Southwest, me and the Duck Camp Dinners crew will be hunting and eating it all. This is Duck Camp Dinner. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Four in the morning. Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Birds.
birds up in the sky.